0: We're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, our wonderful and very appreciated community radio partners across the country into uh, into other countries, in fact, maybe even outer space. Uh, the podcast is definitely where our alien listeners are listening. That's at greenmajority.ca. Um and uh, we've got sort of a uh, – we have a trade. We actually traded up for Stefan this week, I would yeah, say. we, we got have rid a, of him. It's uh, over for Stefan. Stefan's gone. We got rid of that guy. And uh, replaced temporarily possibly with uh, Nora. Nora Bordell, Boydell. See, I'm, I can mess up anyone's name, Nora. Uh, Nora's going to be here um, – Uh, To do a sort of guest interview, so our guest correspondent today, you may or may not jump in on other sections uh, as well. But Nora is here, and uh, and I'm here, of course, as normal with Dave, who has done the majority of the research, and I'm just here for sarcastic commentary. But uh, there might be some feisty weedies in my commentary today because we're beginning the show with might be. Uh, Doug Ford, although I would like to, I'm going to, I'd like to spoil your notes, uh, just to some degree here because there was an, uh, you, you like me, Dave are a fan of good turn of phrase. Uh-huh. And I just wanted to compliment you on the, the listeners being able to look forward to the use of the, uh, expression spineless waffling. mm I, was re- I really liked that part. Uh,
1: but carry on. I'm sorry. Carry on. It's sort of what Doug Ford actually appears physically to be as right, fine as yeah. waffle. It's like,
0: a bi- it's like a blob from Dungeons and Dragons. Just Pile kind of, of yeah. dough.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Anywho, uh, so Ontario progressive conservative premier Doug Ford's controversial Bill 66 uh, has finished its public consultation period uh, just this past Sunday on January 20th. It is called the Restoring Ontario's Competitiveness Act and is one of these many-limbed omnibus bills that tackles a range of unconnected concerns, in this case including, among other things, workers' rights, childcare, education, agriculture, energy policy, pensions, housing development, and environmental and water safety standards. Of particular concern from an environmental and health perspective has been its proposal to allow corporations to ignore requirements like the Clean Water Act, which was established to prevent tragedies like the Walkerton E. coli poisoning that killed several people and made thousands ill back in 2000. It also proposed to open up Ontario's Greenbelt for development and roll roll back environmental protections for the Great Lakes, which supply 80% of the province's drinking water. Now, in a piece of good news for people with bodies and lungs, Ontario's Minister of Municipal Affairs and Housing Steve Clark announced this week that the government, which in a grotesque effort at branding, is still referring to itself in the third person as our government for the people, will strike out Schedule 10, which concerned the opening up of the Greenbelt regarding the decision executive director of environmental defense stated quote they basically had no friends on this bill it was very confusing and i think they themselves got caught out on it a bit because you saw mpps and the premier himself saying the bill didn't touch the green belt which is really which is a really weird place to be in when your bill specifically does touch the green belt it's just bizarre
0: aren't you really glad that we got rid of that really corrupt government that we just had a minute ago Phew. Mm-hmm. Sorry, carry on.
1: And uh, so, as, as you mentioned earlier, uh, the decision continues the cycle of Doug Ford's spineless waffling on the subject, as he stated directly during the provincial campaign last spring that he would open up a big chunk of the Greenbelt for development and then said he wouldn't touch it, and then upon winning the election introduced legislature allowing for the opposite, and now has removed that section from Bill 66 after backlash from communities, municipalities, and activists. He remains, however, a fan of urban sprawl, which plans to eliminate rules that were forcing developers to build denser communities. Excellent sentence. But I suggest
0: that you actually go to the website and okay, and once in a while just like read Dave's notes. Dave's you're re- you're really good at writing these, I have to say. They're, not, choice- po-
1: they're not posted on the website, Aaron. Oh, well, why not? I don't, See, well, that's I how don't, I we, don't we don't have an upload thing. We don't have that. Dave Dave's uh, turn of phrases is is uh, to be admired. Um thank you for
0: that very much. Um, yeah, I mean of course we have a bunch of sarcastic comments we can make and stuff, but the the serious point on that is that like this is the consequent like nobody voted for this. Right? like, Very few people voted for this. this. This government was elected, never mind all the election shenanigans, which is an entirely separate topic. But the people who were sold on this idea of these things were sold on two basic concepts. They were sold on, the government you have now is corrupt, and we're going to fix that, which is a joke. <laughs> uh, and the second one was, we're going to open up all this economic prosperity. And the second one, honestly, is the fault of the voters. And the reason for that is because nothing is free. If someone says, I'm going to take your house and I'm going to sell it and then I'm going to get it back to you and you're going to have a million dollars and your house, there's something wrong with that deal. And yet voters will go and look at this and look at what Doug Ford was actually offering. No proof, no plans whatsoever, and absolutely ludicrous claims and claiming to pay for all these things by canceling all these things, which you don't necessarily in your daily life appreciate, right? You don't daily experience. Most people don't. The the green belt or the benefits of a lower carbon economy or all these things, but they don't cease to exist. Right. And so these are all costs. And so you may not be mindful of those costs, but it is absolutely negligent and absolutely the negligence of the voter to say, I'm going to receive all these things that I want and just assume there's no cost. Uh, because there is. And so the, the thing is not that I have a disagreement with certain people in Ontario who voted for Doug Ford because I have a disagreement about, with them about whether or not uh, climate policy is important or any of these other things. I'm mad at them and I think that they, have, uh, they, they do bear some uh, guilt for this because they voted for someone who promised them a bunch of stuff and didn't ask any questions. And now we're all going to suffer. And this is this is across the board. This isn't a left complaint. Literally everything that keeps us safe in basically every way is being strip mined by somebody who's uh, was called in on the idea of replacing corruption and is now writing a, a new textbook on corruption by g- giving all sorts of stuff to his buddies and just absolutely strip mining everything that keeps uh, every Ontario uh, family safe. So this isn't about sort of this isn't even about climate policy. This is somebody who is absolutely just doing scorched earth to everything that makes a province of Ontario work, mm-hmm. to everything across the board, financial, economic, it doesn't matter. This is just an entire government system is being burned down with somebody who has the audacity and the apparent uh, pant size uh, <laughs> to to say that they're the government of the people. So like, this is really disgusting, and this isn't even about the environment right now. This is sick. It's absolutely sick what's going on. Nora, please.
2: I think one thing that is definitely striking continually is to see these omnibus bills and how much they're able to pass under the rug at a very rapid rate, how many unrelated issues are wrapped together so that people don't have time to learn about them and think about them. The other thing I wanted to talk about is the green belt a little bit. I think we've all had that experience of driving around. If you live in the greater Toronto area, the DTA, and you see these signs, you're now entering the green belt. But do you guys know what the green belt is? Like, how much land does it encompass? I'm just trying to get a, a visual on. Oh, we did we did a
0: Google Map belt. thing uh, before. Uh, we talked about it on a previous show. I think it was basically the extent of like all of downtown. It's quite large. Um, and I, we did it on a previous show when we had the numbers in front of us. I don't right now, but uh, mm-hmm. we, but it, I actually pulled up Google Maps live while we were on the program and said was like, okay, I mean, if you live in Toronto, imagine it's from and it's basically the entire downtown core, quite wide and quite tall.
1: Hmm
2: interesting
1: Mm -hmm. yeah I don't know it's exact acreage but um, yeah it's not it's not just uh, sort of untouched land it's also for farming and so forth and able to maintain those those uh, lush soils so it's 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 just amazing the continued um, attempt at paving over the last vestiges of what we do still have.
0: Yeah, and I mean like we were saying, there's like so many, there's so many different little things you could pick on, but like you have to try and, when you're trying to reach these people that are like, you know, here, see one catchy ad about how our current government's corrupt and just vote for someone else willy-nilly is that you have to give them tangible things to look at because they're just not prepared. They don't have the Um, uh, uh, literacy of the political literacy to actually understand the consequences of the choices that they're making so like one of the images that I could pull at random would be like you know how it's really nice when you um, something that Ontarians will identify with very closely is like driving to the cottage you know how part of that nice a tradition that so many of us have even if we're going to a friend's cottage or a rented cottage there's this Ontario tradition of like this thing of like the transition out of the city right so like oh good we're on the highway now and oh good hey look there's there's these uh, less density of buildings, and then, and then you get to that part, and there's that whole part where like, everybody in the car starts getting into the right mood, where you've just been seeing trees for a while, right? Well, imagine it's like hotels and uh, 7-Elevens all the way to your cottage. That's, that's the visual that you need to have. These are real things. He wants to put real buildings in real places where there are currently trees. So you remember all those times when you really enjoyed the trees? They're all going to be buildings if we let Doug Ford have his way. That's the image that you need to have in your mind. It doesn't mean there's no trees anywhere. It just means you will never see them.
1: It'll be the flattest, most beautiful spread of asphalt you've ever seen, Sarah. Lots of parking. I don't know why you're Parking as far (laughs) as the eye can see. Um, So moving on, uh, still with Doug Ford. The Ontario government is still accepting comments on its so-called environment plan up until the end of Monday, January 28th. So Ontarians have three and a half more days to submit their input directly to the government at ero.ontario.ca. The plan was introduced in late November 2018 and has been widely criticized as not being anything resembling a plan. It claims to regulate big emitters, but a large number of unspecified industries will be exempt. It has no details on what penalties it would levy on businesses failing to meet targets or how it will encourage people to switch to electric vehicles or bring Ontario into compliance with international global warming targets to keep us below 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming. It also offers a string of insults to the idea of environmental health, spending pages and pages on litter reduction, and suggesting that people waterproof their basements to adapt to climate change, and that Ontario has already done enough to combat climate change. With the world on track to see devastating warming this century with untold consequences in scarcely a decade to make radical changes, Canadian environmental volunteer group Climate Fast and Drawdown Toronto released their own Ontario's People Climate Plan at climatefast.ca with the following policy suggestions for Mr. Doug Ford. And these are quite general.
0: Uh, so, no, I just wanted to come back because I realized after I said that that I would, was misremembering the map size that we were talking about. And I was mm-hmm. actually talking about a mine. When I was talking about that, so I because I don't want to do that. So I Googled it. So just for the point of clarification, the Ontario government states the Greenbelt is 800,000 acres or uh, 325,000 hectares. Approximately uh, one million acres uh, is the land protected by the overarching Greenbelt plan.
1: A million acres. There you go. All right. Thank you. So um, much larger. That's why I wanted to say that. (laughs) (laughs) A potential climate plan for Mr. Doug Ford. Uh, these are uh, sort of a, a list of eight general pipe dreams that you, can, um, that you can fall in love with. So one, commit to and invest in 100% renewable energy by 2030 and stop spending taxpayers' money on expensive, dirty energy sources. Take advantage of low-cost electrical electricity options, including the adoption of energy conservation strategies and the purchase of Quebec water power. Do not misuse public money. Account for the money that was raised in cap-and-trade auctions, which was earmarked for things like public building retrofits. Do not spend $30 million in tax dollars taking the federal government to court to fight a carbon fee that will, ret- will be returned directly to Ontario's schools, hospitals, and households. Create jobs and save Ontarians money by accelerating the adoption of renewables, significantly increasing energy efficiency programs, and restoring incentives for building retrofits and the adoption of solar, heat pump, and geothermal energy. Modernize the building code to ensure new buildings achieve net zero emissions by 2020 ensure that green transportation choices are accessible and affordable for Ontarians, including reliable, low-carbon public transport, electric vehicles, supporting grid systems, and safe, active options like walking and cycling. Ensure Ontario's long term prosperity by taking full advantage of green tech opportunities and our skilled workforce. Build infrastructure to help skilled workers in construction, manufacturing, and transportation secure long term employment in clean tech rather than in polluting, fossil fuel dependent industries that are unreliable job providers. Account for the social cost of carbon and choose an effective way to fund green initiatives. Reconsider using our tax dollars to pay polluters in a system that already failed when adopted in Australia. Any system chosen should show reduced emissions in line with ambitious climate targets. Conserve and protect our cherished wilderness and green spaces. Protect at least 17% of lands and inland waters by 2020. They are our most effective carbon sink. And finally, create a plan that includes short- short and long-term targets, concrete details, clear timelines, and a system uh, to transparently and frequently measure progress." Include ongoing, meaningful public consultation. For example, a working group comprised of academics, scientists, frontline workers, and city representatives. It's amazing that a that a um, a government in 2018 has to be uh, reminded to uh, consult people who know what they're talking about on certain issues.
0: Uh, that's pretty standard, yeah. <laughs> Common <laughs> sense. The, the um uh, the, the while I'm taking this opportunity to use the Doug Ford story to scold Ontario, let me f- continue. Uh, <laughs> not the government, but the people uh, of Ontario. Uh, so like there's this thing and it's, it's nothing to do with Ontario. This is like a, glo- this is just like a human culture thing, but it's something that we really need to think about a lot, um, which is, Uh, so just for an example, I wasn't, I'm not saying Stefan was doing this, but as for example, uh, last week, or I think it was last week when I was talking about, um, you know, what the, the policy that I think would solve, you know, climate change. And we had a little laugh about, well, that won't happen, but yes, ha ha ha, because it would require me being God to make, you know, make all these changes that Mm -hmm. wouldn't happen. But the, the follow-up comment that I made was around the, like, you know, to ask people, well, why is it crazy? Is it because it's actually a bad idea or that it wouldn't be just, or that it wouldn't be fair or that it wouldn't be exactly what they said they were going to do. And it would just be holding them to their own promises. No, it's just because that we all acknowledge that nobody has the power and anyone who does have the power to force them that has no intention of doing so. And so the the scolding that I want to take this opportunity to do is that I think and I I had to self uh, I had to self regulate. So I'm actually like I'm saying this because I had this experience with myself this morning, which was reading through that list and having this reaction of being like, yeah, good luck. Right. With like half, half of it is like the most sensible. Like it's literally just like, can you do your job, please? Yeah. But half of it, I, you know, you can't help it. Right. You have this little like, yeah, good luck with that. Um, sort of approach to it, but you, we have to pound that down, which is not to say that I think that every person, I mean, I would love it, but I'm not asking every listener out there to go out there and necessarily like, I don't think it's like, you're a bad person if every single person listening, like 50,000 or hundred thousand people don't suddenly contact this group and support them. But what we do need to be a lot better about is, is stopping beating other people down who are trying to do things, not because we disagree with them, but because we just don't think they're going to succeed. That's really a serious problem that we all need to self analyze about. And I'm saying that because I had to do that this morning. And I think that's something Mm -hmm. we all need to be very, very mindful of is trying to, is taking that skepticism and actually using it to drag those people down. Um, I think we need to. I think we need to do a bit better about that. So, that, but I will promise, however, that that's the end of my moralizing <laughs> for this week.
2: I mean, I completely relate to that. I have to say, when I when I read it, I also am like, okay, good luck with some of these. That's not going to happen. And I also have to stop and catch myself and say, you know what? It's worth trying anyway, even if you just you know two steps forward, one step back. It will often be like that, and maybe not all of these will be reached. But you have to try so that some of it can. be be. But yep. I completely relate to that. It's hard not to be cynical when you see how greedy our society can be and repetitive in their well, behavior. Some of
0: the times, I mean, if we look back to uh, you know Stonewall when it comes to LGBT rights, or uh, or Rosa Parks, or any of those other like sort of like remembering things, sometimes it's not. And I'm not saying I'm not not saying that any of those specific examples apply to what I'm about to say. But like something like sometimes somebody had to get on a bus and nothing happened several times before the Rosa Parks story, right? Or there had to be several times when the resistance to the police didn't work. And part of that thing that eventually builds that critical mass is, is the fellow people who share that problem, seeing someone else being harmed, criticized, ostracized, or, or uh, persecuted in some way for that thing and saying, hey, I recognize that I'm being attacked right now, too. And it's the person who sees the person not succeeding and gets outraged that actually tries even harder and does succeed. Mm-hmm. So you, you, can't, you can't just sit there and be like, yeah, sh- shut up, don't try. Just keep your mouth shut. At the bare minimum, just keep your mouth shut. <laughs> yeah. And maybe when they fail and you see what happens to them when, when they get smacked, when they do get smacked down and fail by the power, that's the opportunity to rally, right? And sometimes that second time can be the time that it does work.
2: Yeah. And I think the analogy there too is, did that solve racism? Of course not. It's still a huge problem. But- but it did make progress and I think we should view climate change similarly. Maybe we won't hit all of these goals but by talking about how impossible they are we won't make any progress.
0: Yeah, and, and just to put that in a real perspective obviously yes, thank you for emphasizing that. Of course not implying that any of those problems are solved but the important thing there is that now we think about that incident of someone you know being told to move on a, on a bus publicly by the driver and all that thing just to, to continue using that example we now, even if racism isn't solved the vast majority of people now understand that that is sick and can't believe that that would have ever happened, right? Like there, there, there's quantifiable progress that is meaningful and mattered, even if the job's not done. Thank you.
2: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I'm gonna
0: go take a chill pill. Um and uh, I think we got a music break. Is that cool? Can yeah. We, can we yeah, do that? It's All, right. All right, I'm gonna go take a I'm gonna go take a pill and uh, and we'll be right back. Megan, what are we gonna listen to? My
2: question's still hanging in the
0: Still this moment. All right. So we're uh, back here. We're listening to the. We're listening. Well, you're listening. I'm sort of also listening to the Green Majority here live at CIUT 89.5 FM, possibly on one of our very appreciated community radio partners uh, or on the podcast, which can be found along with some but not all notes by Dave Hostetter uh, at greenmajority.ca, which is where you can also contact us with a uh, compliment complaint. Uh, if you, uh, were offended by me scolding you, you can send the email. You might even get a response. Um, you can send that through greenmajority.ca, but we're going to, um, I'm going to put my, uh, fire on hold. And we're going to pass you to a much nicer and friendlier person, Nora, who's going to be <laughs> conducting an interview uh, with a guest that I actually, uh, I'm not super knowledgeable, but I know we have a uh, in uh, a climate campaigner, I believe, from Boston. That's, I think, uh, if that's even correct, that's as much as I know. So, Nora, I'm going to stop um, treading water here. And I would like you to take over. And please introduce yourself more fully and your guest.
2: Hi. Yeah. Uh, hi. Thanks so much for having me, guys. My name is Nora Boydell. I'm a freelance reporter. And joining us today, we have Ping Huang. She's also a freelance reporter. She lives in the Boston area. Area, and uh, her reporting focuses on environment, arts, and culture. Um, her work has been featured on NPR, the BBC, Public Radio International, and PRX. Uh, she has a degree in environmental science and public policy from Harvard, and she's also traveled with scientists to Cameroon, Panama, and, and the Antarctica or the Antarctic, sorry, um, to study the impacts of climate change. So she's done a ton of cool stuff. Welcome, Ping. Hi, Nora Bordeaux. Hello. Can <laughs> I can hear you. Yeah. Thanks for being on the show today. Yeah, no,
3: my pleasure. Thanks
2: for having me. Absolutely. So when I met you this year, you were stationed in the community of Cape Cod. Uh, for people who don't know, this is uh, an area south of Boston. It's a coastal area. And you were in the town of Woods Hole to do environmental reporting.
3: Yeah, that's true. So um, you were also down in Woods Hole. <laughs> and So we met at the radio station, WCAI where I was doing a six-month environmental reporting fellowship for um, the Ground Truth Project, which is a nonprofit uh, journalism outfit in Boston and um, uh, WCAI down in Woods Hole. And so I was really focused on telling stories about the human impacts of climate change um, for radio and a web audience.
2: Yeah. Um, And so, for those of you who don't know, Woods Hole is this tiny village, but it's home to some of the world's leading climate change and ocean science. Uh, The Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, National Marine Fisheries Mm -hmm. Service, and a a lot of other scientific organizations. The Woods Hole
3: Research Center. Yeah. A bunch more places.
2: Yeah. And it's also surrounded by the ocean. So, it's a really easy place to actually witness the impacts of climate change, especially on the ocean, of course. Um, So, Ping, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how. This reporting experience changed you. Maybe changed your views on the environment and your understanding of climate change.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I so like you mentioned, I have a degree from about ten years ago in college um, for environmental science and public policy, and so that's something that I studied in school. But I kind of sort of put it um, on a, sort of to the wayside for a little while while I sort of focused on other, um, you know, other topics in journalism. I worked for a couple of years on a daily talk show which covered national and international topics very broadly, um, and then also sort of took a detour into um, the arts and uh, graphic design for a little bit. And so that reporting fellowship that I did down in Woods Hole, um, where we met, was sort of a coming back to um, focusing on the environment and climate change and sort of updating my knowledge about um, these topics because a lot has changed in the last 10 years. And so, um, you know, I am someone who has been, Uh, based in Boston for quite a while, but still, I think, um, you know, there's a difference between being in the city and, you know, experiencing all the policy decisions that people are making around climate change, like understanding on a theoretical level, what, what what the models are showing. Um, and then actually being in a place um, on the coast, on the ocean where you are actually seeing the effects of sea level rise, affecting people's home values, affecting the way that people live, affecting the architecture, um, You know, affecting flood insurance prices, Um, you're sort of seeing very viscerally the the daily impacts of climate change on people's lives. And so I think that was really eye-opening for me, and I imagine it was for you as well.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Something we would talk about a lot are why would people live right on – why would they live right on the ocean? Um, If you're (laughs) lucky enough to be privileged and have sort of freedom of movement – in this day and age, why would you choose to have oceanfront property or even live in a coastal environment? And I know it's something that I used to have some judgments about before moving to Cape Cod. Um, and maybe it's a broader question that that you guys might be interested in talking about on the show in general is how should climate change factor into your decision about where to live, uh, whether it's what city or what region or what part of that city. Um, but I know that, that spending time around the ocean, our view and our judgments of that choice uh, shifted, Ping.
3: Yeah, I remember, No, I distinctly remember that, like, in the beginning, you and I would have these conversations about, you know, this is such a beautiful place, but why would people want to choose to live here when it's so clear that sea level rise is happening, that, like, stronger storms are coming because of climate change, that, like, you know, living in this particular area, living this close to the ocean, to the water, to the effects of climate change are, um, are really going to be, like, you know, discounting and disvaluing your property and maybe making your long-term, you know, lifestyle here unsustainable in the long run. Um, and then I also remember just thinking about, like, you know, a couple of months into us being there on on the Cape, um, we started having these different conversations where it was kind of like we had drunk the Kool-Aid. Like, we were like, oh, my God, this place is so beautiful. Why would you want to live anywhere else? Why would you ever leave? And so I think, I think it's easy when we sit, you know in our offices and our homes and we think about um, from a very logical perspective how you know climate change is impacting coastal areas how it's impacting the way that we live and you know you want to make smart decisions that sort of you know are good for you and for future generations about all that but then there's also this magic that happens when you're living in a place that is beautiful and close to nature and you're able to go out to the water and look at the horizon every day and um, and, and we also kind of discount that value of nature and the environment in our climate change assessments. sometimes, I think.
2: Yeah, and I think there's also an argument to be made for when you're exposed to that kind of beauty, you might be more willing to fight for it um, when you're mm-hmm. exposed to that on a daily basis. Um, I'm wondering if you can tell us, Ping, what's something that has come up again and again in your reporting on the environment? Have you noticed any, any themes that just keep reoccurring?
3: I think for me, it's been really about thinking through, like, what exactly are the human impacts. And I think one of the things that come up again and again for me, at least in the area that I was in, was the sort of denial of, um, of the fact that the effects are being seen right now, you know. And so one of the things that I kept hearing in the area that I was reporting on, you know, you know so of course you mentioned it's a place with a lot of scientific institutions. People are very well informed on the one hand. And on the other hand, you have, you know, a population of people who, um, you know, frequently say things like, um, you know, climate change is real, but it might, like, I don't know what caused it, you know. And so that's something that I kept hearing frequently from people. And as a reporter, it made me think, well, okay, like, how can we work with this information? You know, how can we move the story forward how can, we, um, how can we sort of explore impacts and solutions and all that stuff um, in a way that reaches all people, you know, instead of just the, just the people who are already converted to the, to the idea or already knowledgeable about the science behind it. Um, and so for me, it, it turned into telling stories that were really about people's neighbors being affected, people's um, property values being affected, the way that people were sort of um, seeing and feeling the changes in their neighborhood that were already happening. Um, so I guess for me, it was kind of trying to figure out a way to really ground, um, ground the reporting in an experience that was universal that people could really feel and understand, um, you know, and, and just sort of try to not be so, I I don't know, maybe just try to sort of make it interesting and, and like something that people could really relate to as opposed to, you know, like something that people would listen to and say, well, no, that is you know, that's not what I think, so I'm just going to discount it altogether.
2: Hmm. Um, do you think that reporting on the environment and climate change is overly scientific? Um,
3: no, I don't think it's overly scientific. Um, I think, but I think what we're finding right now in the fields of environment reporting and climate change reporting is a desire to um, branch out and sort of encompass more topics um, and more interdisciplinary, like, intersections in the reporting. So, I think it started in a place where it was very scientific, you know, and that sort of comes from a perspective in journalism that's a little bit old school at this point, you know, the idea that, like, if you just present people with the facts of the matter, that is your role and people will listen, you know, um, you don't need to draw any connections for them, that's what people, that's what news consumers will do for themselves, um, and I think now, um, increasingly, there's been a shift into saying, well, you know, people, you know, it, it, it's useful for the reporter to help people draw connections between topics that are happening, you know, like wild weather events, like those are not happening in a bubble, those are tied to climate change in a lot of ways, you know, like let's report about climate change in relation to weather, let's report about climate change in relation to infrastructure projects, let you know, include climate change in the conversation about the arts, about um, about politics, about all these different things that are happening. And so, I think there's an increasing um, interest and desire on the parts of reporters and the public to sort of talk about climate change in these different ways, in addition to the scientific reporting that's already happening. And of course, there could be more scientific reporting, and there could also be more reporting about climate change and its um, con- connections to other topics
0: as well. Thank you. Uh, Ping, the, uh, Saren here, the, the Green Majority, um, uh, main host person who's largely staying quiet I uh, just, <laughs> hi, 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 sorry so we're uh, David and I are, are sitting here uh, listening as well to the interview and it just occurred to me so something I talked about on this as, as well before and I just wanted to ask you to comment on as well, it's a, a natural follow up from what Nora was just asking about but the, just the idea that in a, traditionally in the in most mainstream media's when they're talking about um, do we, taking action on climate change, there's always a cost associated, right, so they're, they're always asking questions like, you know, what impact will this have on the economy and, and whatnot, uh, but there's And to my assessment, sitting here from my very comfortable um, studio, not in the real world, uh, it seems to me that whenever we're talking about the threat of climate change, there's never a cost associated with it. Uh, It's always just, um, you know, they are talking about legitimate things, like there there might be a superstorm connected to this, but it's never, and that's going to cost the country $10 billion over the next five years or whatnot. Uh, Do you assess that the same? And and can you comment on that? Yeah,
3: completely. I think that you're pointing to something that's been missing from the climate change coverage. I think... Um, that's something that I was trying to get at over the summer in my reporting that I didn't quite succeed in doing because it's really hard to get those numbers, you know. Um, I think one of the things that we were um, thinking about in terms of the reporting that we were doing was saying, like, okay, like, yes, we know that the cost of building this, you know, uh, barrier, you know, like, I don't know, like this barrier to storms will cost this much. But what we don't know and what we can't report on is how much it will cost to not build that barrier, you know. And I actually think that that is a growing field in environmental economics. I went to um, a couple conferences over the summer where it felt like people were um, aware of that cost being a missing cost in terms of people being able to assess the impacts of climate change and the impacts of inaction as opposed to the, the cost of action. Um, And so I think that that is a growing field, but I think one of the issues that reporters and economists and communicators in general are kind of hampered by is just the lack of access to those numbers and a lack Mm -hmm. of analysis of those numbers. And so I think you're right. I think that is, like, you know, it's really important when you're assessing the cost of something that's, you know, having an impact in the future to also be able to say, well, if we don't spend, I don't know, like $2 million right now, in 10 years this is going to cost $2 billion you know, something yeah.
0: like that but, <laughs> and, um, also, and I'm just thinking about the like that. cumulative psychological effect on the populace of every day every time they hear the word climate action or or action on climate they hear a number associated with it and mm-hmm. whenever they hear impacts of climate change they might hear something scary but it's like a tornado it's like okay well I've never been hit by a tornado right and there's no so like you're I don't think they're doing it intentionally I'm not proposing a giant conspiracy but unintentionally <laughs> the public is being conditioned to associate climate action with expensive and to associate climate impacts with no cost. And I, I don't think anyone's doing it intentionally. I just, I'm really just concerned about the overall, because I I can understand how an individual reporter on an individual nightly news program, isn't thinking about the macro impact, psychological impact of every show that year from every station on every viewer, but somebody has to. So I just wanted to point that out. Oh, let me pass you yeah. back to Laura. No, no, that's interesting.
3: I was going to also say that I, when I think about that too, I think, um, I'm not sure that I completely agree that we're not talking about the, the cost of the impacts of climate change. Like, I think, you know, like you were saying, like we talk about the cost of action, but then when a tornado hits, like I feel like I do read articles about the cost of that tornado's impact, how many people it's affected, you know, what the recovery costs have been. You know, there have been wildfires in California, and there have been numerous articles about the, the cost of rebuilding some of those efforts. And so I think that. You know, it's, it's something that people will talk a lot about, but it's never, you're right, it's not completely connected in the context of, you know, if we could prevent these costs, this is how much that would cost, you know? Like, it's always like an after-assessment of, of the impacts of something after it's happened.
2: Thank you, Ping. So I'm just going to shift gears here a little bit in the remaining time that we have. And you did some really interesting work this summer about being a person of color and reporting in a very white area. And um, something that came up in some of the conversations that you were having with a fellow reporter was that the environmental movement can be quite white. Um and, and uh yeah, just to reiterate, you were doing a lot of this environmental reporting in a very white area. And I'm wondering if you would be willing to share some of your thoughts on on race and how it impacts environmental reporting and how it impacts the environmental movement also.
3: Sure, yeah. So like you mentioned, um we sort of started a little bit separately, but Sarah Tan and I, Sarah Tan is a reporter at WCAI, and she and I were the two we' um, you know, two Asian people in a very predominantly white area. And so, you know, people would get us confused with each other all the time. And, you know, at some point after the end time that it happened, it started becoming really frustrating. And so Sarah and I started having a series of conversations with each other that we recorded that we're hoping to turn into a podcast about what it's like to be, a, you know, sort of a person of color in a very white bubble. Um, and, you know, it's part of that because my um, mandate has been to tell human impacts of environmental change and climate change has been to sort of think about how that affects, um, how, you know, color and diversity affects these issues as well. And so I think that with the environment, um, there is like a social justice component to it that, you know, a lot of people, you know, try and, and very successfully report on, but I think there can be a lot more of that. Um, type of reporting going on and specific to the Cape it was kind of hard to get to those stories in particular because the Cape is kind of a very unique place and a lot of the people who are seeing the most immediate impacts of climate change are people who live right on the coast and usually people who live right on the coast are very wealthy and um, in the case of much of the Cape, predominantly white and so it was hard to sort of like tell stories about, you know, people who are disadvantaged and being disproportionately affected by climate change on the Cape, like I felt like I, you know, dug a little bit, but wasn't necessarily successful in finding those stories in the time that I had there. Um, But I think for sure, I mean, it's going to be, you know, a bigger and bigger story when it comes to climate change. I think um, there are people, uh, you know, people are starting to talk about climate migration where um, people in different areas are being, you know, are moving to higher ground and moving inland into higher ground. And so um, in those areas, you know, people who have lived in, you know, suburbs that are not necessarily the fanciest and most coastal areas are actually being forced out of their, um, their homes because of uh, rising home prices because of climate migration. So I think, like, stories that intersect social justice and human health with the um, with climate change is going to be something that we hear more about, um, as, as, you know, the impacts become more prevalent.
2: I know something that was also coming up for you was you were going into a lot of environments, um, where there's a lot of, you know, trade workers who are mostly white men. Um, and I know you commented sometimes about being a small Asian woman. Sometimes you felt like you weren't being taken seriously in those environments.
3: Yeah, that is true as well, and I think that um, you know it's it's something that Sarah and I talked a lot about as reporters of color in in places that you know people are used to seeing people who are um, you know people in positions of authority that are white men, and so it becomes um, it's just an added layer of what it means to be a reporter um, in a in a place that you're not the majority, and uh, you know it's. it's like it's a layer of discomfort that I have to work with and it's also a layer of discomfort that I sometimes try to turn into something that is my advantage, you know. So maybe it's not, you know, you know, like a lot, like a trope in radio and in reporting in general is like if you're at a loss for a story, just go to the bar, grab a drink with, you know, just grab a drink at the bar and, and talk to the person next to you. And as like a small Asian woman of color, that's maybe not really the smartest or safest thing for me to do. You know, sometimes, frequently um it would probably give people the wrong impression of of why I'm there you know I'm there to gather stories not to you know pick up dates or something like that you know (laughs) and so that's a distinction that I need to sort of draw but also you know it, it makes me think well maybe I should think more creatively about how to get stories and how to access stories and maybe my um access to you know the a particular predominant story pool is is not the same as it is for other people um but at the same time, I have access to other stories about communities of color and, you know, um, just different communities that, you know, the predominant journalistic pool doesn't have access to. And so that can be an advantage, too, if I can if I can find those stories and, and tell them.
2: Great. Okay. So we have about one minute. So just time for one more <laughs> question for you, Ping. Um, I wanted to ask you, a lot of climate change uh, coverage is obviously a bit on the depressing side. I'm wondering if uh, you have a fun fact you want to share that you learned from your reporting in the last six months or something that brought some joy um, to you that you discovered.
3: Oh, my God.
2: (laughs) It It can be
3: really depressing. It can be really hard. Um, As a climate change reporter, you know, I think I fight also against the tide of feeling a lack of um, energy sometimes or a lack of movement and hope that I think actually – One of the most interesting things that I have learned recently um, was actually reading a book by um, Brene Brown, who's a vulnerability researcher, and she says that hope is not an emotion, hope is a muscle. And so hope is something that we can exercise by creating um, agency and figuring out a path forward and sort of like really sort of working on action. And so I feel like when I get discouraged in my work, I think of like, okay, like how can I... Um, be hopeful about the future myself in a way that I can also, you know, convey to other people that there is hope for the future. I don't think it's my job as a journalist to inspire people to to take action or change necessarily. Um, Or, you know, but if my stories do that, I think that's great. And I also think that, like, an important role for me as a journalist is to do that self-care and maintain that hope and excitement about the future myself so that I can accurately convey that, you know, the future is not necessarily going to hell
2: in a handbasket now okay thank you so much for leaving us with that thought this is ping huang a freelance reporter in the boston area thank you so much for your time ping
1: and
0: uh, thanks for having me ping, we'll, we'll make sure you get a link to today's show if you go back and listen to the segment that preceded your interview um and then your closing i think you will laugh very hard you were by far the least depressing and most uplifting part of this episode i promise you
3: <laughs> wonderful thank you
0: all right. Uh, Megan, what is our second and final music break today? All right. We are back. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT89.5 FM, our wonderful and very appreciated community radio partners, or possibly on our podcast, which can be found at greenmajority.ca with some, but not all, of Dave's notes. Uh, speaking of Dave, we're back to Dave uh, okay. for some more news. Sadly, there is more Doug Ford news, but uh, I'm not going to moralize through this one. Carry on.
1: So uh, conservative politicians uh, like Doug Ford and Andrew Scheer often claim that a carbon tax is damaging to the Canadian economy, but there don't seem to be many economists willing to agree. Ford, who is in the middle of spending tens of millions of public dollars fighting the federal tax in court, fighting the carbon tax in court, claimed on Monday that a carbon tax is an economic disaster and that it will plunge us into a recession. He didn't say how this would occur, nor did he answer any questions about it. An analysis from Canada's Ecofiscal Commission, a group of economists advised by a board that includes former conservative politician Preston Manning, projects slightly slower growth due to the carbon tax since the money is being given back to canadian families it moves money to different sectors rather than taking it out of the economy and will probably be better for the economy in the long run as the world transitions away from fossil fuels in fact some new research suggests that a carbon tax will save canada from a recession partly because so many canadian pensions are tied up in fossil fuel development which will be curtailed which which will be curtailed if we are to avoid climate disaster Clean tech, which is partially financed through a carbon tax, also represents tens of trillions of dollars in potential economic gains worldwide over the coming decade. Indeed, carbon pricing has not hurt the economies of Sweden, Quebec, B.C., California, or Ontario. Mike Crawley for the CBC reports, quote, Last week, a list of 45 senior economists from across the U.S. political spectrum published a statement in the Wall Street Journal endorsing a carbon tax with all revenue given back to citizens. This includes the former White House economic advisors, treasury Treasury secretaries, Federal Reserve chairs, and Nobel laureates. But Doug Ford seems to want to blame whatever bad things occur on whatever has been done by his political opponents, as he has blamed the carbon tax for the closure of a General Motors plant (coughs) in Ontario, but he's also blamed it on steel and aluminum tariffs. The mayor of Lordstown, Ohio, however, whose constituents have also been hurt by GM plant closures, stated to the press, quote, This isn't just a GM issue. People aren't buying cars. We have one of the best products General Motors has ever put in the GM Lordstown facility here. It's, the quality is great. The workers are fabulous. It's the best we've had here. There just isn't a market for it. Progressive conservative strategists told the CBC, however, that Doug Ford will continue to use the phrase carbon tax recession to help his party leading up to the federal election.
0: Yeah, that pretty much speaks for itself. The, mm. o- the only thing I wanted to add to, to, to that as well was just to mention quickly, uh, I, I'm not super well versed, I'll just put that out front about uh, the history or operations of the Ecofiscal Commission, but I am slightly familiar with um, Preston Manning and uh, he's not someone I would put in the Doug Ford camp of just like despicable human being with terrible mm. ideas and worse impulses. Um, I just politically disagree with him about a lot of stuff. I'm sure if I knew more about him, I would. But like, he's not a particularly menacing figure. But the like conservative, small C conservative, in the sense of like not the Conservative Party, but just conservative, like old people are conservative in general. Sorry. Old people. I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, no, uh, which is actually not, not at all true. Um, but just the idea that sort of what I want to put there is that, you know, they're not, so they're not like a conservative party, uh, hit organization, but at the same point, they are conservative in the sense that it is an, you know, an old white man's club for economics thing. So their numbers are going to be conservative again, in the rounding downside, they're also going to be conservative in the sense that they're not going to be taking in the most uh, extreme, and they include the most, but most legitimate, as in they're the most accurate, uh, climate impacts. Um, hmm. And, they're, you know, he is a former conservative. So every advantage to when that, when, when that organization says that there will be slightly slower growth due to a carbon tax and may actually be beneficial, that's like, that's... <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's the best endorsement you're going to get from a conservative organization for something like this full stop. Mm-hmm. Like they would never put out a paper that says, Oh my God, this is the best idea ever. So I just really wanted to underline that like the best argument against this is that it will slightly weaken it. And there's a lot of problems with that argument. That's mm-hmm. all I have to say.
1: All right. So um, moving on still in Canada, but moving on to um, Alberta, uh, Sharon J. Riley, published an article in the the Narwhal this past October, looking at how government messaging is policed in Canada, focusing specifically on an advertisement put out and paid for by the province of Alberta promoting the Trans Mountain Pipeline. It's an advertisement from Alberta's Keep Canada Working campaign aimed aimed at building public support for the proposed Trans Mountain Expansion Project, which would triple the capacity of an existing pipeline running from Alberta's tar sands to the coast of British Columbia. The ad, the explicit point of which is to promote fossil fuels, features images of windmills and birds, people happily planting trees, and flowers emerging from the city's skyline. The voiceover claims that the pipeline will bring down emissions and build hospitals, schools, greener energy, and a viable national climate plan. But it's the video's claim that the pipeline expansion doesn't mean more oil production, which brought the ad to the attention of the Advertising Standards Council when it was reported to them by a resident of B.C., The Advertising Standards Council, also known as Ad Standards, is the not-for-profit body that is charged with administering the Canadian Code of Advertising Standards. Those standards explicitly forbid direct or or implied inaccuracies, deceptions, or misleading claims, statements, illustrations, or representations in advertising. But the government ad states that the pipeline does not mean more oil production. The company itself, however, Kinder Morgan, when first trying to get the project approved, wrote to the National Energy Board, quote, the expansion has been developed in response to requests from Western Canadian oil producers and West Coast refiners for increased pipeline capacity in support of growing oil production. Indeed, they have made this claim multiple times to the same regulatory body, stating in their final arguments for the pipeline in 2015, quote, additional pipeline capacity is required for growing Canadian production, end quote. And on the Trans Mountain website, Kinder Morgan's first argument as proof of the projects being in the public interest was that it would increase oil production. So the government of Alberta is spending millions of dollars of public money in order to lie to that public about a project that the government wants it to support. In perfect 21st century Orwellian style, the Keep Canada Working campaign sadly and ironically claims that their advertisements are meant to counter misinformation. The ads have been shown across the country since April of last year. It turns out, however, that ad standards cannot pursue any complaints regarding political advertising. Regarding political advertising. This is any advertising deemed to be regarding a political issue. The advertising code is meant to apply to government departments and crown corporations, but whether or not something is a political issue is up to the staff at Ad Standards. A political st- studies professor at Queen's University told Sharon J. Riley at the Narwhal, quote, "There's nothing any advertising standards rules. There's nothing in any advertising standards rules or regulations that can control or limit the content of government advertising or political party advertising." There has been only one case in AdSandard's history where a complaint against government advertising was upheld, which was in 2010 in Alberta regarding a free training program. But they did uphold 10 complaints against advertisements by anti-abortion groups. Generally, false advertising from a political party will be called out by rivaling parties, But in Alberta, where the New New Democratic Party is in charge, every major party is in explicit support of the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion. Since the provincial election campaign will begin in Alberta starting March 1st and non-essential government advertising must be suspended for the campaign, the ads can be seen as using the voters' own money to influence their opinion in a partisan campaign. As well, complying with advertising standards, even when called out by the administrative body, is voluntary, and Ad Standards claims that political parties will not give any assurance that they will be bound by the decisions of the Ad Standards Ad, ad Standards Council.
0: So basically the short summary of that, the, uh, the, the Coles notes, if you will. Uh, company does, does something indirectly which is blatantly dishonest, would normally get in trouble for it, but because they also own a bunch of politicians, it's totally legal. Is that more or less right?
1: Well, is, what's interesting is now that the, that the federal government even owns this particular pipeline. They're now also there a crown corporation, and they're the very government that's supporting it. So, well,
0: and the, you know, people talk about the blurring of the lines between this the state and large industry, but there's nothing blurred about this. This is a solidified yeah. mixture of mm-hmm. government. And here we have the
1: industry is the government. The government is there's
0: nothing nothing blurry about it. It's just Mm -hmm. a mixed pot of both. Mm -hmm. They have been blurred together and are now a single sentient organism. It's a slurry. And uh, consequently, uh, just by magic as well, I'm sure no, no lawyers were hired to dig and, and find loopholes to be able to do things like this. Uh, it just so happens that they now have a perfect conduit to seed disinformation that both benefits political parties and private companies at the cost of being dishonest and deceptive to the public that they are claiming to support. Uh, but this is totally all above board, I'm sure.
1: I mean, I can see why um... – We would want to have certain exceptions for political advertising in terms of uh, like how they can be cracked down on in terms of what they can say. Um, But in this case, we clearly have uh, citizens' money being spent to deceive those very citizens.
0: Uh, It sounds to me like we need some new ad standards rules uh, where if something is considered to be lobbying, i.e., something is to be considered before government that has a private invest in it that should be the absolute height of restrictions and standards on advertising spending the mm-hmm. absolute pinnacle if you have something before government and there's the, so essentially to get the rules changed you need the public to be on your side that should be the opt uh, you know you know thing that will conversely then affect the same public uh, that should be the absolute pinnacle of strictness of accuracy, honesty, transparency, and fairness. Mm-hmm. And people just kind of assume that it is, frankly, is the is probably the reason why it's not. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it isn't. Mm-hmm. Just F-Way. We're out of time, all right. Yeah. Complain about that more.
1: Yeah, we're out of time. I mean I could I could end you with a Greta Thunberg quote, do or it. we could leave. No, okay. uh, do it. Okay. You, got, you got two minutes. Do a quote. So adolescent Swedish climate activist Greta Thunberg has descended upon Davos, Switzerland to deliver a message to the World Economic Forum and take part in discussions. Uh, In a video posted online, she stated, quote, Some people say that the climate crisis is something we have all created, but that is just another convenient lie, because if everyone is guilty, then no one is to blame. And someone is to blame. Some people, some companies, and some decision makers in particular have known exactly what priceless valuables they are sacrificing to continue making unimaginable amounts of money. I want to challenge those companies and those decision makers into real and bold climate action, to set their economic goals aside, and to safeguard the future living conditions for humankind. I don't believe for one second that you'll rise to that challenge. But I ask you to move, prove me wrong for the sake of your children, for the sake of your grandchildren, and for the sake of life and this beautiful living planet. Will you pledge to join me and the people all around the world in doing whatever it takes? I will
2: for anyone who hasn't seen that video there's something very satisfying about watching a 15-year-old girl tell a group of people that they are evil in the most articulate <laughs> way possible
0: that's true and that's very that's very um late 2010s i think we can keep that going All right. That's all the time we have for folks. Thank you so much to our special guest correspondent, uh, Nora, for joining us today and her guest as well. Both were wonderful. Please join us again anytime. And you, the listener, you can join us anytime on our website at greenmajority.ca or right where you're listening right now, a week from now. Take care.